Thank you so much, Lord, for the beauty of this text and what we have yet to learn. And as we go through 1 Kings, the sweetness and the depth and the power of what it is that we're going to be looking at, Lord. I pray we have, uh, as we have so much to learn, I pray that, that our hearts will be ready and our minds will be ready. And Lord, that we will be willing to receive what it is we need to receive from this text, Lord, as we look at this historical passage. So please, Lord, I just pray that we'll be ready now and that we will be captivated in your word and that we would have so much fun in your word and that we'd be drawn in and that every moment be perfect. So have your way, Lord, I pray. Let this be beautiful, beautiful time spent. We commit every moment of it to you, Lord, redeem every second. And Lord, may we, may our eyes and our hearts just be sponges now, Lord, to receive what it is you want to show us and speak to us. So, Lord, overflow your Holy Spirit out of me and take my lips and attach them to your heart and manifest, Lord, through your word. Now we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I would say tonight as I would like any night, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible be the authority. Now, we transition now to the books of First and Second Kings. It was originally one book, by the way, until it was translated into Greek. We call that the Septuagint. Uh, there's arguments over who the writer was. Some say Ezra, some say Nehemiah. And the Talmud, uh, the traditional Hebrew writings, collected uh, 500 years after Jesus. Uh, they actually say it was Jeremiah. But nobody says. It doesn't say. All we know is it's the historical account. Now, please understand, if we're looking at the history of Israel... From the time of Saul, after Samuel, I mean, we had the time of Judges, Israel took the land, uh, that was the book of Joshua, and then from there, there was this weird cycle of sort of them getting too comfortable, turning their back on the Lord, finding themselves in captivity, crying out to the Lord, he raises up a deliverer, and then that deliverer delivers the people, and then the whole cycle starts all over, that's the book of Judges, and then from there, what stops that is putting a king on the throne, and the people had asked, give us a king that we could be like all the other nations. The king that was brought to them was the king Saul. Uh, it was definitely somebody like them. They asked, give us a king so we could be like everybody else. You got to know this. The moment you ask God to do something to make you like everybody else, you're already in trouble. Now, you're probably aware of the fact from the moment you say yes to Jesus Christ, God has placed within you his Holy Spirit. And when he places his Holy Spirit inside of you, he starts, that Holy Spirit starts setting us apart. Our behavior, our motivations, our priorities are very different now from the world. Now, in the world, it's all about us personally, and it's all about everything else is a means to that. And then we give our life to Jesus, and all of a sudden, our eyes open, and it's like, whoa, I didn't even realize you were in the room because I was so full of me. And everything changes. And from that point, the moment, the moment we start trying to look back like the world is the moment where we're fighting the work God is doing inside of us to set us apart. We're the only living thing in the morgue. And so trying to look like the rest of the world is, well, at best, dumb. Now, Israel asks for a king to be like the other nations, and, they, and God gives him one like the other nations. He was good looking. He was tall. He looked great on a stamp and on a five-pound note, if you will. And for 40 years, 
that particular king, he again ultimately reigns over the United Empire of Israel. We might say the United Kingdom of Israel. Ultimately, Saul is replaced with David, God's choice. Now a king that doesn't make them like the rest of the nations, but a king that makes them unlike the rest of the nations under the lordship, grace, and governance of the living God. And David will rule for 40 years. After David, what we'll find is that David will ultimately hand the kingdom, spoiler alert, to his son Solomon. The first 11 chapters of this book are, in essence, the reign of Solomon. Solomon will reign, in essence, again, 40 years. Think of it as 40, 40, 40. Solomon will be the last king of the United Kingdom of Israel. After Solomon, much like his divided heart, the kingdom and his fruit will bear forth the same, and the kingdom will be divided. The north will be divided. Ten tribes of the north will claim the name Israel, ultimately making as their capital Samaria. And the two southern tribes, that's Benjamin and Judah, will then make the claim to call themselves Judah, for which we get the term Jew today. From that time, Israel will then be in this spiraling decline. The northern side, 20, I'm sorry, 19 kings, each one nasty and rotten, not a single good one of them all. In the south, arguably eight decent kings. So there is this pendulum, if you will, this bouncing back and forth between decent kings and then bad kings and then a new king who has to clean up the rubbish from the last nasty king. And so there is this in the southern side of Judah, again, following the lineage of David, there will be this bouncing back and forth. So for the first 11 chapters, we have the last king of the United Empire, if you will. I mean, other than chapter one, where we're going to start to see his installation, that's Solomon. And then from there, we're going to have to, we're going to start seeing this comparison of the north and the south. Now, we won't get the entirety of it in first Kings. That's why we have second Kings. And again, by the time we are done with second Kings, first Kings, 40 years of Solomon, 80 years of those Kings beyond that until roughly about the time. And that's kind of where we're looking until about 850 BC. And then second Kings will take the rest of it where we'll see the, the downfall of the Northern side and then the downfall of the Southern side. Each one will ultimately be conquered, taken captive by an enemy army. The north, for what it's worth, Assyria in 721, 722 B.C., uh, and then in the south, 586 B.C. by Tiglath-Pileser III and that of Babylon. Now, all of that to say this, because you have that much information right now in, under your belt, what we have then is the biography of a hard fall, if you think about it. We are looking at the entropy of an empire, the devolving of a dynasty, and that alone makes this text invaluable to us to take steed, um, stern heed and warning from. It tells us in 1 Corinthians 10.6 that the things that were written became our examples, that we should not lust after the evil things in which they also lusted. Speaking, by the way, in that case, primarily about them falling in the desert. Uh, during the wilderness, during the time of their exodus. It tells us, though, in Romans 15:4 that whatever things were written prior, and that's what we're looking at now, were written for our learning that we, through patience and the comfort of the Scriptures, might actually have hope, interesting as it is. So what we're going to find is we're going to find what it looks like 
We're not talking about like where Proverbs says that a righteous man may fall seven times and rise again, but the wicked will fall by calamity. In other words, there's a difference between falling and rising up, stumbling, and the difference of I've fallen and I can't get up. There's the difference. Yeah, that was perfect time, wasn't it? Now, the reason I say that is you're going to see an entire dominating, world-class, world-dominating empire of David where all of the kingdoms around it, surrounding it, were under subjugation to David. And you're going to watch this kingdom that once was the world force become ultimately sucker to other things that will rise up in its stead. Now, the reason I say that is it couldn't be more pertinent than what we deal with, first of all, politically. And I'm not a political person, but I do know this. This little island once had influence and impact over the entire known world as we know it. This island. And the uh, latitude of Canada, where it rains almost constantly, this island at one time impacted the entire world as we knew it. It was the world governing force, if you will world influencing force it was the superpower dare i say that at least in the last well however long us united states has been that a much bigger land mass size of europe and the reason i say that is if we had looked at david's empire we would have seen something invincible at least for a period of time we just said man this is untouchable can't touch this and then to see it fall. And then you can look, and there was a time when England was so strong that the whole world bowed to it, to one man or another. And the reason I say that is, without the strength of the living God, that's destiny for anyone. It tells us that, by the way. It says the nations will be turned into hell that forget their living God. Not because God wants them there, but because he's the only thing keeping them from there. But what about you and what about me? We find ourselves invincible. I'm not, not talking about whether you can or can't lose your salvation. It's not the point. To be honest, if you're freaking out about it, we'll get right with the Lord and you won't have to worry about it. That's the way I am. But the, the, the issue on this as we look at it is, is that somewhere in all of this, we should take the stern warnings that we see here because what we see is this dance step back and back and back and back to this place of destruction. And I don't want to see that for any of you. I don't want to see that for me. I don't want to see that for you. I don't want to see that for anyone that makes claim to Christ. Having said that, notice what it says in verse 1. Now the king was old and advanced in years, and they put covers on him, so he couldn't, but he could not get warm. Therefore his servants said to him, Let a young woman, a virgin, be sought for our lord the king, and let her stand before the king, and let her care for him, and let her lie in your bosom, and uh, that our lord the king may be warm. So they sought for a lovely young woman throughout all the territory of Israel, and found Abishag. Abishag, by the way, means my father is a wanderer. She's a Shunammite and brought her to the king. The young woman was very lovely. I challenge you in scripture to find out how many women are called very lovely. She was very lovely and she cared for the king and served him, but the king did not know her. And again, of course, that's know her biblically. It wasn't like they hadn't been introduced. Now, we start with this. 
the book of first Kings starts with a, with a really rough condition for a king. Now, although David is 70, David will die at 70 and he's about to turn it in. He has more wear and tear and road miles than he really does just average mileage. The road has been rough, abrasive and abusive to him. And David is older than his age. He is spent. From ages 15 to 30, David fled for his life from the incumbent Saul prior to him. The king at 30 then finally becomes king, but only of the southern tribes for seven and a half years, and then finally becomes king of the rest to rule. But even after all of that, when David finally makes his king, his center, Jerusalem, there will still be Bathsheba. And after Bathsheba, there will be Amnon, the oldest son, who rapes his half-sister and then is killed by his brother. And that same brother, Absalom, who then, listen, gathers 50 people, 50 men to run beside him, kind of like he, he creates his own entourage, like a rap video. And then he sort of shows himself strong and then seeks to, to kill his dad and steal the kingdom from his father. Don't miss that. And yet David still loved him. He was a beautiful man. At least that's what people would say. That was what scripture says. But by this point, David's bedridden and he's old. He's old, not because he's 70. He's old because he's been run over more than once by life. Now, historians all, even to the day of Jesus, would say that this was a common practice. As a matter of fact, these particular individuals were called physicians. Do you know it made its way all the way to medieval times here in England, by the way? I don't know. To be honest, there might be some places like, you know, Italy where you could actually maybe still have somebody. But I, the only reason I say that is because there are certain places where they're today in really expensive hotels, you know, you can actually, in some cases, actually pay to have somebody lie in your bed so it isn't cold when you get there. Now, I don't know about you. Kind of think a cold bed's better than somebody else's nastiness laying in my bed before I get there. Now, I'm reading this to my daughter, my, my 13-year-old, who's sort of sharp as a tack, and she, her first thought is, why not a guy? Why not just have a big, hairy guy? Because he would be warmer if that's all that David wanted. And I'm like, you know, with all due respect, I don't think David's going to find any comfort in just some sort of Samoan large man to kind of wrap his arms around. Now, David's not going to be sexual with this girl. And yet, in all of that, David is David and there's no electric blankets. There's no turning up the thermostat. David is cold and he can't get warm. Now, you know the difference between it's cold outside and there's that internal cold where you just can't seem to get warm. And so they're like, well, this is what we need to do. We need to find ourselves a beautiful young thing to lay beside him. Now, how would you like to be that? I mean, that would be weird. Just the same. It's weird to us, not weird to them. Now, with that in mind, what we do read is she is a Shunammite. Shunem, for what it's worth, is five miles south of Mount Tabor. We might say it more so it's eight miles southeast of Nazareth. That makes it a little bit more clear. It's Issachar territory. But for what it's worth, it's important to note that Shunem, by the way, today's Solem, is a very different from a place called Shulam with an L. And the reason is, is that there are some people who try to connect this with the Song of Solomon. And they'll say, well, this gal, though dad really never knew her, he just kind of laid warm, she warmed him up. And then Solomon, the son, kind of looked and went, man, you a fine thing. And, you know, well, you can argue it if you want to, but it's just, it's, it's a Shunammite and Shulamite are two different things, for what it's worth. So here's where it starts. And I want you to recognize something, because there is a lot to draw from this, even though it's a weird and kind of awkward thing to talk about here. And is that at this particular state, the king 
has been vacant of the throne and he's cold and he's weak. Now, Adonia, by the way, his name means my Lord is Jehovah, the son of Haggith. Now, Haggith is, is actually a nicer name than it sounds. Hag means happy, like Haggai, the prophet. Matter of fact, if you go to Israel, you can get what's called Cafe Hag, which I always think is kind of a, a, a title you could give somebody that's nasty that works at, you know, Starbucks. There's a Cafe Hag. But Cafe Hag actually means happy coffee is what it means, you know. Now, for what it's worth, the Haggith should stick out if you're a Bible student, and that is because Haggith is the mother of Absalom. And that already starts to stand out. I'm like, hmm. Mom had Absalom, and then mom had Adonia. And Adonia, we read here, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. Does that sound familiar to you? That's exactly what his big brother did. His big brother, when seeking to kill dad, mind you, grabbed his entourage, went out and started parading himself, and now I guess the younger brothers kind of learned from it. Now, if I take Second Samuel chapter 3, verses 2 through 5 to heart, and I do, there's a list of David's sons. Traditionally, they're in order from oldest to youngest, and that's what we have. The first one, Amnon, remember he was killed by Absalom. Second is a guy named Chiliab. He's also called Daniel, for what it's worth. And he's the mysterious one because he seems to have disappeared. You never read anything about him after this text. So in other words, chances are he was born and he was either born stillborn or he, was, he died somewhere in his youth. That's the assumption because he just kind of never seems to show up after that. So listen, Amnon, killed by Absalom. Second guy, the mysterious Chiliab Daniel. Let's just say he's gone. Third guy, Absalom. We're aware of the fact, killed brother number one and then was killed, so he's dead. Brother number four, Adonia. Now what that means is, at this particular moment, though he's the fourth son, he is the oldest living son left. And he's in about his mid-30s at this point. So you can see him kind of naturally going, well, I'm the oldest, I'm going to do it. But now don't miss this, because at this moment, the throne is vulnerable. Do you get that? David hasn't been on the throne for quite a while. He's kind of bedridden, and he's cold, and he's weak, and he's feeble. And at this point, you got this kid who looks and goes, I'm going to take over and step into that space. Don't miss this, because this is what we learn when you want to see how to fall hard. It's right there in front of us. If in our lives we have this time where the Lord sits on the throne like he should, and that means that the, the, the decisions we make in life are handed to him. He helps. He's the one who hands out those things. Our identity found in him. Our comfort found in him. Our peace, our security found in him. And as that is the case, he sits on the throne and we are attentive to have him be Lord. And then there are moments in our life where we're like, mm, you know what, I'm going to put you on pause and I'm going to go out and do my own thing. Now, that doesn't just mean I'm going to go out and do rampant sin. Sometimes it's just, I've got this dream I want to pursue, or I've got this thing I need to get to, or whatever. And it's now all of a sudden, it's like we've decided to send ourselves on its own mission. And at that moment, the, the throne of our own heart lies vacant. Because at that moment, the Lord's not calling the shots like we want Him to. Now, He has them to say, we're just not listening anymore. And as that's the case, we find ourselves in this place where we get cold. And we get feeble and we get weak. 
But I want you to know, the throne never stays vacant long. So what you find is there's always a sin, always something from the flesh. And if you think about it, Adoni is just kind of a flash from the past. He's just kind of like his big brother. We've already seen this play out before. And so what you find is somewhere in it, you know, and and please understand, the way that you fall off a cliff is not normally you just run. You kind of inch your way to it, convincing yourself you're still safe. And it takes often in a case like this in my life, and I would challenge you to say perhaps your own as well, that we get to this place where we're doing something and maybe it's Christian-esque. It's Jesus-ish. You know, it's like, yeah, it's, it's still religious, but it's not really Jesus-focused. And it's like I'm praying, but I'm not really praying really with in a conversation. It's no longer a dialogue. I'm just kind of ticking a box because somehow or that should keep God happy. Or I'm not really reading to know him better. I just want some information or, well, okay, I did my half hour or whatever it was, you know. And it's like now everything, it's like things are duties now. But I would hate that to be the case with my, me and my wife. I hate to be like, oh, well, okay. You know, I'm like, hey, honey, let's go out to dinner. We go out to dinner. And at the end of it, I'm like, oop, that was your hour. Let's go home. Well, now I don't have to take you out for another month. Awesome. I mean, I think my wife should be offended by that. Now, why do we do it with God? You know, and it's like, imagine God's like, why don't you come over my house and let's enjoy fellowship together? And we're sort of like, well, you know, that's church, man. I don't know. I really want to do church, you know. And it's like, the Lord's like, yeah, but you don't even realize how blessed you will be about being around other people that love me and love you and how we grow together because you're out there blending in with a really world that hates you and hates God. And you come in here and you're like, isn't it great to be saved? And you're like, oh, it's about time I heard that from someone. It's nice to hear the name Jesus and it's not being cursed. And I look and I realize that what's happening here really happens to every one of us if we're not careful. And we just we just get busy. You talk to couples and it's like there was a time they were so intimate and they were so sweet and they were finishing each other's sandwiches and they were, you know, and all these cute things were happening. And then you we well, just grew apart. Well, you how did you grow apart? Well, we just got too busy. You just got too busy away from each other versus with each other. And you know what happens? Is beautiful, romantic, married couples become roommates. Oh, they're still living in the same house. There's the occasional kiss because it's, you know, good night or it's, you know, well, it's nice to see you or goodbye. The same way that there's that occasional prayer. It's the prayer before a meal if you're really there. Uh, and there's the prayer before sleep because you don't want to have bad dreams anyways. You know, and it's that word. There's a bad moment and you're going to pray. Well, that's what we, what we do. And then there's this coldness. And then all of a sudden, this like thing in your life, it's like, how did I, how did that become part of my life? How did that sneak in the door? Because the throne's been vacant, because I made it vacant. Well, in a situation like this, there's Adonia. Adonia sees that, and he's an opportunist, and he sees it, and he goes, ah, oh, that's mine. No, I'll take that. He's not waiting to be invited. You know that sin doesn't ever ask for invitation. Sin will come barging in anytime you let him. So, what's clear, according to First Chronicles 22, is that God made clear to David that the, that the Lord gave him plans for the temple that Solomon would be the heir. Who does the exalting here? Adonia does. 
Nobody says, hey, bro, you're the oldest, man. Well, they wouldn't talk like that anyways, but follow me. You know, you should be king, man. Or, you know, some day where he was listening to the soundtrack of The Lion King, and he's like, just can't wait to be, that's me. You know, it's like, there, there's just, there isn't this crowd of people that are like, dude, you're it, man. You are it. It's Adonia. He looks, and he kind of looked in the mirror and went, whoa. Because <laughs> he's a good-looking guy, what we're going to read. He's like, you know, well, my brother's dead, and, well, I think it's time for me to step in line. But what we're going to find is, you know who he doesn't tell? His dad. Now, you should know something's not right if you're not telling actually the guy who is king that you're going to be king. I mean, imagine, if you will, Adam wakes up one day and looks and goes, you know, I am a pretty good-looking guy, and, you know, they take pictures of me because of that. And, you know, I decided I should be king. I mean, you see what Charles looks like, and William's lost his hair at this point. You know, there was a time girls swooned, but now he's married and he's got a couple kids. You know, I, on the other hand, they're going to love me. And he just decides, you know what? And he puts a Twitter account out there as I'm looking for 50 people that think I'm cute and want to run beside me. And, you know, and he gets his entourage of screaming goonies beside him, you know, Adamites. And, uh, and there they all are. And he goes and, he's, and, he, and, he, and he goes to one of those goofy stores where they have like thrones you can buy, you know. And he buys this throne and he just parks it in front of Buckingham Palace when he gives himself a crown and he sits there and he's like, I'm ready to seize the throne. And you can imagine how weird that would be. Especially because David's not aware of it. Which does tell us a bit about where David is at the moment. But what if it was Prince Harry? Wouldn't it still be weird? Especially, I mean, let's face it, if Harry all of a sudden started doing photo ops with him with with the crown and the scepter and all of those things, somewhere on the line you would think any journalist worth their salt would say, so, have you told your mom? Well, you know, I mean, she's still alive. Technically, she's still the queen. But notice the reason why part of that he did this. He prepared chariots and horsemen for himself, 50 to run beside him. Verse 6. His father had not rebuked him at any time, saying, why have you done so? He was also very good looking. His mother had borne him after Absalom. Now, you know what I find interesting? If you're the kind of person who does this, and, and it's a fun thing to do. There are 31 chapters in the book of Proverbs, and there are years where I just dedicate, you know, whatever the date is, I just take that chapter or something, you know, because there are 31 days and, you know, half of the months of the year. So it's like, you know what? Okay, I'm just going to read through the, the proverb of the day. So it's Proverbs 1. If you do that and you read Solomon's, because most of them are from Solomon, Solomon's verses, 13 times he addresses the issue of parenting. And of the 13 times, if I have this right, 11 or 12 of those times, he says, you should beat your child. You know, you really should beat your child. And I kind of wonder if Solomon was writing that because of this. Because he's like, you know, David at no point had ever been the dad to this guy. Now, understand, part of being a dad is, is the guy that says, you know, that's enough. Now, understand, rebuke doesn't just mean you whip out the belt. Rebuke just means you start setting boundaries and you tell them when something is wrong, it's wrong. And you have a whole generation that says, how dare you tell me anything is wrong? I'll decide for myself what's wrong. Don't you dare tell me what's wrong. Because we have a whole generation, if you will, of Adonias, if you think about it. Now, 
for what it's worth. And I mean, David, of all the people, the same guy who would say in Psalm 23, verse 4, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now, a rod is to smack that sheep, get it going. He's like, it comforts me. He wasn't providing that. And of course, God tells us that he chastises the sons he loves. He goes, man, if you haven't been rebuked by God, you might want to wonder because dad knows how to correct his children. It's always the correct behavior, of course. But when I think of David and his relationship with his father, I mean, there's a part of me that thinks, well, remember when every other son was brought in because Samuel was going to pick a new king and Daniel didn't even invite, I'm sorry, and, and Jesse didn't invite David even in? It's like David's the youngest of eight brothers. Seven of the eight brothers get invited in. David doesn't get invited in. That's a weird relationship. So I can see there being weirdness, but unfortunately it's being handed down. But now this Adonia starts gathering his crew. Verse 7, he conferred with Joab, the son of Zerubiah, and with Abiathar, the priest, and they followed and helped Adonia. Joab, that's David's commander. But remember that David had actually told him to go and count the people, and we, we read that those words were an abomination to Joab. David had done enough things to make Joab just not respect him anymore. Is that, but the good news is it's not everyone. But unfortunately, they have a, they have a priest. That's Abiathar. They have no prophet. And they've declared this boy king. But they've never asked David or Zadok the priest or Benaiah or Nathan or the mighty men or even Solomon in this matter because they know this is not right. Verse 8, but Zadok the priest, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, who by the way is also a priest, First Chronicles 11 tells us that, Nathan the prophet, Shemai, Rai, and the mighty men who belonged to David were not with Adonia. Not all of David's personal bodyguards, his, you know, his uh, SAS, those individuals, none of those, of course, you're not going to ask those guys to join you because you know that they're loyal to David. Zadok, by the way, will become the father of the Zadokites. The Zadokites is where we get the term Sadducee in the New Testament. For what it's worth, and I challenge you to read the last eight chapters of Ezekiel and see that God really elevates this individual and says, though the other priests will stand before the people, this guy is going to stand before the Lord. Now, in David's case, they have a prophet and a priest there. Now, Adonia sacrificed. Now, we're back. We're going to bounce back and forth. Adonia, remember the guy who's trying to take the throne, sacrificed sheep and oxen and fatted cattle by the stone of Zohelet. Zohelet, by the way, an appropriate name means serpent. How's that for it? Which is by Enrogel, which means the font of spies. Okay. He also invited all of his brothers, the sons, the king's sons, and all the men of Judah, the king's servants, but he didn't invite Nathan the prophet. You don't want a prophet there because a God spokesman is going to tell you what you're doing is wrong. Benaiah, the mighty men, Solomon, his brother, didn't invite any of those guys. But notice the kind of sacrifice this guy does. What this guy does is that, I mean, when we talk about a sacrifice, traditionally that's you give up everything. A burnt sacrifice means every part of the animal is gone. You can't make leather from the shoe, you know, shoe leather with the, with the skin or the hide. You can't take any of it. Oh, no. Well, there are other cases where what you find is a selfish individual tends to take the parts that only the Scots eat and they burn that. You know, that's the guts and the fatty lobe. And that guy's let's just throw that into the fire and let's take the rest of it and we're going to barbecue. And that's what Adonia is doing. It looks like sacrifice, but what he's doing, and this is, please, th- please note this because this is to learn from, is that what he's doing is he's really looking like he's surrendered and sacrificed, but what he's given up is the stuff he doesn't like. 
You know, it's like, hey, God, I'll gladly give you my addictions. I'll gladly give you my loneliness and my insecurities and my fears. Oh, take that stuff away. But my identity and my dreams and my, well, that stuff on the other hand, that's kind of the meat here. And God goes, yeah, but you know what? Don't pretend that you're giving everything when what you're giving is the part that, you know, basically it's like, yes, I gave God everything. I gave him all the rubbish on rubbish day. And I can't help but think in the book of Acts of a couple, Ananias and Sapphira, and that's exactly what they did. They sold their house, not a big issue, but they gave part of it, pretending like they gave it all, and they went up dying from it. Because, man, you want to find yourself quickly to, quick to a place of spiritual death? Act like a martyr when you're doing nothing. And I can't help but think of David that said, I will not give to God that which cost me nothing. Now, if you have, and this is, this is not intended to be an advertisement, but if you have the O2 priority thing, I think it's free, right? If you have O2 as a carrier, um, you get this, you know, this app that kind of gives you vouchers for all kinds of things. Well, one of them happens to be Cafe Nero. You get a free coffee every Tuesday, a free hot drink which happens to be coffee, according to Cafe Nero. Well, the reason I say that is, if you probably know by now, I really don't like coffee. So I'm like, well, gee, this is perfect. This is great. But what I'm learning is there's a lot of other people that do. And so I'm actually going there now and going and getting my coffee, my coffee. It's like the weirdest thing I've ever said. And then I'm just looking for a guy that's out there. And today I had a really sweet guy named David that was sitting out there. His cup was out. And I'm like, hey, bro, I just got this coffee. And I don't drink coffee, but I got it for free. I just want to give it to you and tell you that Jesus loves you. And he was like, oh, my goodness. He's like, wait a minute. How much of the coffee's left? I'm like, oh, bro, I'm the safest guy. All of the coffee's left. And as a matter of fact, it's a matter of fact, it's like a block down. It's still hot. And it was such a great open door for a conversation. And then I walked away from that. I'm like, but you know what? That didn't cost me anything. What that cost me was the five minutes it took for me to go in there, humble myself to ask for a coffee drink, and then walk out with it and give it to a guy. And, you know, it's like, oh, thanks. This is going to be so great for that guy. You know, and it's like, but then I'm like, but Lord, the most expensive part of that was my time. But I don't want you to think that, oh man, look how I've given over my entire life to serve you because I really haven't. I get so much more out of being with you guys. Uh, then it, there's just no, it's just not total sacrifice. There is such a push and pull in this. With that said, this guy makes it look like it's a total sacrifice. He burns the yucky parts and then takes the rest and says, come on, you guys, we're having a barbecue. That's what's happening here. He's gathered the people that he likes, but obviously not the people that he knows will openly call his bluff and say what you're doing is wrong. But it's going to catch wind to the prophet. You're never going to get past a prophet. You're probably aware of that. Verse 11. Nathan spoke to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, saying, Have you not heard what Adonia, the son of Haggith, has become king? And David, our Lord, does not know it. Don't you realize David doesn't even know this? Now, I remind you, Bathsheba happens to be the mother of Solomon. She's one of David's wives. And in all of that, he's looking, he's like, you do realize, right, what's going on in your house. Come, please, let me give you advice that you may save your own life and the life of your own son, Solomon. Go immediately to King David and say to him, Did not my Lord, O King, swear to your maidservant, saying, Assuredly, your son shall reign after me and he'll sit on the throne? Well, then why has Adonia become king? And while you're still speaking there with the king, 
I will come in afterwards and confirm your words. Now, Nathan, I remind you, the last time we saw Nathan, we've really only seen him twice. The first time he kind of pops in, David's like, you know what I was thinking? Oh, I was going to build a temple. And Nathan's like, good idea, buddy. And then God says, whoa, 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 whoa. David's not going to be the boy to do this. It's going to be his son. And, and so then Nathan has to go back and go, oh, I know I'm a prophet and all, but God said, you're not the guy. But the second time was when he had to nail him about Bathsheba and tell him, you know, and again, forgive the loose paraphrase. Dude, you stole another man. Your bodyguard's wife had him killed, impregnated her. You can't think that God thinks this is okay. What's interesting is that you would think at a moment like that, if, and this is, I say this to, to I'm reading into it, Bathsheba's character, but if she really thought this whole thing was okay, you'd think she wouldn't be okay with, with Nathan, would you? Do you know what I'm saying? The fact that it seems like Nathan and Bathsheba have a decent relationship tell us that I think she looked and she was like, thank you, Nathan, for telling the truth. Now, in First Chronicles 22, verses 5 to 9, David will speak about this whole issue where he really did say that Solomon would be the heir to the throne and he would be the one to build the temple. It is important to note in Deuteronomy 19.15 that it takes two or more witnesses to establish a matter. So she's going to come in and speak. He's going to come in to back it up so that they have a more than one witness. So Bathsheba did what she was told. She went into the chamber of the king. The king was very old and Abishag the Shunammite was serving the king. Weird moment, wouldn't this be? That's your husband there laying with some fine young thing because he can't get warm. And my first thought is, why wasn't Bathsheba volunteering for this? I don't know. What, what do I know? So here he is. He's depleted. He's removed. But understand in a moment like this, David is so weak that if David just wants his whole thing, the whole kingdom to fall apart, all he has to do, listen, listen, listen. If David wants this whole thing to completely fall apart, all he needs to do is nothing. It's already happening. If David really wants this thing to just fall into the toilet, all David has to do was let it because it's already happening. And if you really want any relationship to become strained and weak, all you have to do is nothing. But what's important about any relationship is you got to do... You, and let's face it, if you want to be with somebody, you'll make move, movements towards that direction. And certainly David's going to realize that. Verse 16, Bathsheba bowed and did homage to the king. And there she is bowing while, you know, Abishag is there. And anyways, and the king said, what's your wish? And she said to him, my Lord, you swore by the Lord, your God to your maidservant saying, assuredly, Solomon, your son shall reign after me and he shall sit on my throne. So now look, Adonai has become king. And now my Lord, the king, you don't even know about it. He has sacrificed oxen and fatted cattle and sheep in abundance. And he's invited all the sons of the king. Abiathar the priest, Joab the commander of the army, but Solomon your servant, he is not invited. And as for you, O my lord, O king, the eyes of all Israel are on you, that you should tell them who will sit on the throne of my lord, the king, after him. Otherwise, it will happen when the lord, the king, rests with his fathers, that I and my son Solomon will be counted as offenders. This is really common, by the way. When a man takes the throne, he kills anyone that's a threat to that throne. And the easiest person that's a threat to the throne would be the sons, any son of the king, of the previous king. So this makes sense. She's like, look at, 
you said that my son was going to be king. This guy's being king, and you know what happens. He's already showing signs that he's not in with Solomon. So if there's the moment this guy really takes the throne and you give him the space to do so, he's going to kill us. And just then, while she was still talking to the king, Nathan the prophet also came in. And so they told the king, saying, Here is Nathan the prophet. And when he came in before the king, he bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. And Nathan said, My lord, O king, you have said, Adonia shall reign after me and sit on my throne? For he has gone down today, sacrificed oxen and fatted cattle and sheep in abundance. He's invited all the king's sons and the commanders of the army, Abiathar the priest. And look, they're eating and drinking before him and say, Long live King Adonia. But he hasn't invited me. And Nathan's like, you can imagine, Nathan's like, I'm the prophet here. You'd think you'd invite me, your servant. He hasn't invited Zadok, your priest, nor Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, nor your servant Solomon. Has this thing been done by my lord, the king? And you have not told your servant who would sit on the throne of my lord, the king after him? He's going, David, this is really unlike you. I mean, wasn't it always a prophet that anoints the king? David, you were anointed king by the prophet Samuel. Seems really weird to me that this guy is kind of stepping in. Is there something I don't know? When the king said, he answered and said, call Bathsheba to me, which tells us when Nathan came in, she was dismissed, which is common courtesy. So she came into the king's presence and stood before him. And the king took an oath and said, as the Lord lives, who redeemed my life from every distress, just as I swore to you by the Lord God of Israel, saying, Assuredly, Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place. So I will certainly do this day. Then Bathsheba bowed her face to the earth, paid homage to the king, and said, Let my lord, the king, live forever. Of course, we know that that's a phrase of, uh, of homage because we sing that same song here, only we use the long of the queen. Which is fun, fun if you actually read all the verses because there's all... Things about Scots and all kinds of things. Anyways, so the king said, call, me to Zad- call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah, all the people who were not invited by Abiah, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and they came before the king. And the king said to them, take with you the servants of your Lord and have Solomon my son ride on my own mule and take him down to Gihon and let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him king over Israel. And blow the horn and say, long live King Solomon. Now, go ride my mule and everyone's going to know that's my mule. Does that sound weird to you? You think, well, sure. Oh, like you imagine. It's like the, the guy's riding the mule and they're like, oh my goodness, that's David's mule. Except for this. You're probably aware of the fact that a mule is a mixed breed. Probably aware of that, right? And, and because of donkey and horse. And the reason I say that is that Leviticus 19.19 forbid crossbreeding. So a mule has to be imported. It wasn't like there were a whole lot of mules and there was one easily to ID. David was more than likely the only guy that had one of these. And so, I mean, it would be kind of like some kind of, you know, like an Austin Martin, something that you might say is a really rare car. And you'd say, all right, put him in my Austin Martin, where everybody knows that's the king's Austin Martin. Or, you know, the queen she has looks like really, that really cool chariot that's pretty uniquely the queen's. And you're like, put her in that, put him in that. And I want you to go and notice I want a priest involved and I want a prophet involved. I want a priest because he knows he represents the Lord. And I want a prophet because he should be listening to the Lord. And I want these two to say, this is your man. And take him to Gihon, by the way. That's the one water source for Jerusalem, if you will. And, uh, and so... That's at the site. And so I want you to take that 
and I want you to go and make him king. And now it kind of gets funny, only because I remind you at this particular moment, there's a party going on at Adonia's place, and he's unaware now that Solomon's being anointed king. So, then you shall come up after him, verse 35. He shall come and sit on my throne, and he shall be a king in my place. For I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and Judah. But I, the son of Jehoiada, answered the king, Amen. May the Lord God of my Lord, the king, say so too. As the Lord has been with my Lord, the king, even so may he be with Solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of my Lord, King David. So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, the Cherethites and the Pelethites, that's David's bodyguards. That's, if you will, that's the Delta Force, Navy SEALs, that's the SAS. Uh, they had Solomon right on the king's mule. Now you've got to know when you've got David's sort of secret service with you that this is the real deal. They had, you know, they had him right on David's mule. They went to, to Gihon. Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tabernacle and anointed Solomon, blew the horn, and all the people said, Long leave, live King Solomon. And all the people went up after him, and the people played flutes and rejoiced with great joy so that the earth seemed to split with their sound. And I remind you, this is the first time in 40 years there's been a regime change. I remind you, even when David was brought in to be king, it was at the death of Saul. So there was a mixed emotion there. But this is the first time there's been, if you will, an official public inauguration, a passing of the crown. And so here it is. Now, that would mean that anybody that's younger than 40 has never seen this before. But let's face it, we have something like that even more so. How many years has our queen reigned? Can any one of you tell me? She just had her jubilee. It's, it's a, that's just awesome that we don't... Okay, here's the point of it. Everyone in this room, when we were born, everyone in this room, when we were born, she was queen. How weird is that to think? We have never seen a regime change in this country. So we kind of wonder what that's going to be like. Well, that's the case for anyone under 40, which still is most of you in this room. Me, me too, but I'm just kidding. Uh, now, here's, so here's the situation. Let's pull this in. We'll get to our last few verses and it'll be fun. So follow me on this. It started with this. There's a vacant throne because there's a cold king who can't keep warm and he's old and run down by this point. And so there is a guy who shouldn't be king but thinks he has a right to be king because he just kind of said, well, logically, I'm the oldest or whatever. I'm good looking. This is cool. I'm the guy. And he doesn't do it by going to David and saying, David, can I be king? Clearly, that tells me he knows David would say no because he's already said someone else. He doesn't go and seek to those, speak to those who personally wait on David because they're going to be faithful to David and they're going to say, sit down and shut up, Junior. It's not your place. This is not your place. You do not belong on this throne. And But that doesn't stop Adonia. Instead, he just finds, and there will always be somebody for you to find that's going to be able to back you up in your lunacy. You want to get mad on someone? There's always going to be somebody that will back you up and be a soft shoulder. Often it can be Christians that are seeking to be sensitive and compassionate. But in that, you're spouting venom. And they're like, oh my goodness, that's so sad. That's so sad. Instead of calling you out and saying, you know, that's really wrong. And anyways, all of that. So ultimately, here he is. And he sets himself. He gets his posse. And he's like, you guys, I decided I'm king. How does that sound to you guys? Yeah. All right. Well, I tell you what. Then let's have a feast. 
party time. Disco ball goes down. Laser lights start shooting out. In the background, Earth, Wind, and Fire going, celebrate good time. Come on. Right? And he's like, I'm the new king. Yeah. Right? And all this is happening. And everyone's like, and he's like, oh, hey, let's do a sacrifice. All right. What parts don't you like? Good. Let's burn that. Who wants hooves? Anyone want hooves? Good. No hooves. You know? Okay. And then while we're at it, okay, let's take the rest of it. Let's barbecue it. You guys take care of it. I'm king now. And then let's feast and be happy. And while this is happening, you know, there's like, David, 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 there's like a party going on because there's a new king in town and he isn't the guy that you said should be. So let's get in. David's like, well, then let's get on this right now. Please understand, hear me in this. When you get to that place where you're making your own decisions and you're not consulting the Lord or seeking to surrender to him and you're hoping God will get behind your ideas instead of you getting behind his and you go, well, I know I need to get right. Now is the time. It isn't like, well, maybe I should get around to it. David knows because if not, the, every moment that is wasted is another moment where this guy really gets deeper entrenched in the throne. And you know that because the more you let that sit there instead, the harder it's going to be to kick it out. But David goes and he goes hard and he goes strong and he goes, look at you take all of the big boys and you have them surround and let the entire nation know this is my man. And his name, by the way, means brings peace. With that, they're all shouting and playing flutes. Now, verse 41. Adonia and the guests who were with them heard him as he was, uh, heard it as they finished eating. So I guess they got a meal out of it. And Joab heard the sound of the horn. I remind you, he was David's commander. And he said, why is the city in such a noisy uproar? While he was still speaking, there came Jonathan, who was a runner for David, by the way, uh, the son of Abiathar, the priest. And Adonia said to him, come in. You're a prominent man. I'm sure you have good news and bring good news. Jonathan answered and said to Adonia, notice he's speaking to the quote unquote king. No, this isn't good news. Our Lord King David has made Solomon king. The king has sent him with Zadok, the priest, Nathan, the prophet. Remember those guys you didn't invite. Beniah, the son of Yochiada, that'll show you to not to put them on the guest list. The Herathites and the Pelathites, you really want to mess with those boys? So they made him ride on the king's mule. Remember the mule? Well, and Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet have anointed him king at Gihon, which means that, if you think about it, that means this guy seeking will be an unanointed king, would be what he would have been. And they have gone up from their rejoicing and the cities in an uproar. That's the noise you've heard. Solomon sits on the throne of the kingdom. Moreover, the king's servants have gone to bless our Lord King David, saying, May God make the name of Solomon better than your name, and may he make his throne greater than your throne. Then the king himself, your dad, bro, blues paraphrase, bowed himself on the bed to this. Your dad bowed to this son. The father bowed to this son and said, You're in charge now. The king bowed himself on the bed and the king said, thus, blessed be the Lord God of Israel who has given one to sit on the throne, my throne this day, while my eyes still see it. And so all the guests who were with Adonia were afraid, arose, and each one went his way. Don't miss this moment. Disco balls down. Celebrate good times. Come on. Everyone's feasting and oh, 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 telling their jokes. And it looks like the crew from Thor, you know. And they're oh, 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 and all this. And the guy comes in and says, oh, this guy's got some good news. Tell us what's going on. Well, it's not good news. 
uh, uh, don't you? Well, um, your brother, actually the one that was promised to be king, has just been anointed king. And uh, that looks like you're really not, no matter how much you want to declare it, you're you're really not now, according to David. David himself even bowed to this guy and said, you're the king now, you're in charge. And everyone was like, and they were gone. Could you imagine? And there, like, can you imagine? There's like Adonia with his stein, with his sitting on his throne. He's got his scepter. He's like, yeah, where are you going, guys? And everyone's just gone. See, what they know is when the king, when the real king speaks, it's done. And we can try to do it in our own strength, But when we try to have that throne be vacant and we go our own way, the only way to really have this thing solved is to go back to the king and say, King, it's yours. And at that point, the entire rebel army, Phantom Menace style, just disappeared. They're all done. They're gone. And now, Adonia at this moment is the king of no one but himself. So what do you do in a moment like that? says in verse 50, Adonia was afraid of Solomon. Uh-huh, you think. So he arose. He went and took hold of the horns of the altar. By the way, interesting, don't you think that where he ran for mercy was the altar, the place where the slaughter and the sacrifice takes place? And it was told Solomon, saying, Indeed, Adonia is afraid of King Solomon. For look, he's taken horn of the, hold of the horns of the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear to me this day that he will not put his servant to death by, with the sword. You know, you realize, I'm sort of thinking, if I were Solomon, I'm like, Okay, I will not put you to death with the sword. Give me a spear. Well, uh, Solomon says, If he proves himself a worthy man, not one hair of him will fall to the earth. But if wickedness is found in him, he will die. So Solomon set them to bring him down from the altar, and he came and he fell down before King Solomon. And Solomon said, go home. And he went home. This chapter ends where the rebel, the rival, the okay, it does say go to your house. Okay, I want to make sure I'm literal. But it's, you know, the, the rival, the, the, the head of the mutiny has bowed himself to the proper king. In my own life, there are moments where, and you know, I can tell you how, it get, how easy it gets. Somebody does something weird and you obsess on that thing. You know you should just forget it, forgive it, let it go. But it just, it haunts you. It sticks on you like, a, like an ink stain. You can't get off of your skin, you know. Or worse yet, it's like, like you stepped in dog poo. And no matter how much you rinse your shoe, maybe it doesn't smell like it, but you still think it smells like that now. And it's like that, and you can't get rid of it. And for that day, you're like, you know what? Forget it. I'm actually just going to spend the day stewing in this dog poo of a moment. Like it's ever going to do anything good. And then you wonder why at the end of it all, you find all of these weird sins like knocking at your door going, how about can I join this party? Because clearly this is a party where it's a rebellion against the king. And somewhere down the line, I'm like, oh my goodness, what in the world is going on here? You know what I'm doing? I'm Adonia-ing, if that makes sense. I'm gathering my crew and deciding at this moment, I'm gonna, I'll just be king instead. And I'm like, you know, at that moment, it isn't like, wow, I need to do 15 steps to get back to the Lord. I'm like, Lord, let's start with this. If I confess my sins... 1 John 1, nine, he is faithful and just to forgive me my sin and sins and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. So I'm like, God, I'm going to start with this. 
king. You are the king. I am not. I bow before you when I tell you, you say this is wrong. I agree with you. This is wrong. I'm not going to tell you I have a right to sin. I'm not going to tell you these are all the reasons to justify my rebellion. I'm not going to try to play this thing off or somehow qualify it. I'm just going to tell you this is wrong. And you're a king. Please take the throne like you belong. Now, clearly a message like this would be clear for someone that we might say would be a Christian. Someone that knows, that's been there, walked away. And so whether that is you or the challenge to keep this in your pocket for that moment when you start recognizing it could be you. The Lord wants us to know. I want to remind you, the ultimate end destination, the end game of this is that both parties are going to be taken totally captive. They are going to be defeated. And you don't want to be that. The king of kings reigns and rules and is the almighty. Who do we really think is, a, is appropriate as a, as a competition for that? And I just want to pray tonight for myself and for you that we could be people who love the king and enjoy the king like we should. And in doing so, there would never be a coldness in us, but just a fire like there should be. Will you pray with me? Lord, I want to thank you so much. First, that we could call you Lord, that you give us that choice and that option and the opportunity to call you Lord. And we know that there is going to be a day that no matter what camp, no matter how many people they have and whatever media attention and whatever resources, there is going to be a day when every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that you're Lord Jesus. And we're supposed to be doing it now. The throne is rightly yours in our hearts. Forgive us, Lord, for where we try to have you vacate it some way so that we can replace it with something so stupid and temporary. And I recognize even right now, Lord, as you work on our hearts, that we be people that would be faithful to your kingdom. Thank you for sending your son, Father, to die on the cross to pay for all of our sins. Thank you for having him raise again for raising him again on the third day, just like scripture promised, so that we could have a new life. And in that, Lord, we thank you. We commit ourselves to you, Lord, and say, Lord, please, let us be people who never see in our life the tragedy that we see set before us in these, in these books. And we should learn from the UK and even from the downfall of, of America. There was a time when Italy ruled and reigned over the entire world in one way or another. And they called themselves, the Roman Empire called themselves the eternal kingdom. And yet, Lord, these things that seem so mighty and so invincible and so full of influence also found themselves in places of great weakness. And we realize that 
there's no power or might in and of us that can do anything of any great nature. But it's your spirit. It's not by our power and not by our might. It's by your spirit, Lord. So please, make us people who gladly keep you where you belong, enthroned and glorious. We commit ourselves to you. Rule in our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.